Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. Hey, if you will open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, Luke chapter 13, it's about three-fourths of the way back in your Bible, and if you didn't bring one, it's on page 728 of the Black Bibles if you want to take it out. We're just so thankful for the privilege to be able to look at the Word of God together. Many of us have our own copy. If you don't have your own copy, please take that black one. We'll replace it. We want everybody to have the privilege of reading God's Word together. But Luke chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 18 through 21, and then just a little bit after that, Luke 14, 15 through 24. So keep your Bibles open or mark your place if you would. But today, I want to talk to you about the kingdom of God. That's what these verses are going to bring up. Jesus is going to talk about the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but when I think of the kingdom of God, it sometimes seems so abstract to me. I, I, I need some help. I, I, don't, I don't immediately know what to think when I hear kingdom of God. But one of the places that's helped me in life is the novel, the children's book that C.S. Lewis wrote uh, in the Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia series, that first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I know it's been made into a movie. Some of you have read the book. But if you've never read it, let me just give you the backstory. Four children during the Blitzkriegs in the Second World War, four children from London are shipped out to a relative's house. Uh, and it's a great, huge house, and they're there um, so that they can uh, experience some peace and some protection. And anyway, while they're there, they play hide-and-seek. And there's so many rooms in this house, and one of the children discovers a wooden, a tall wooden wardrobe. And uh, they climb in there to hide from their brothers and sister. And uh, what happens is, is that while they're in there, they discover that this doesn't have a back on it, that along with the coats and things like that, Uh, they just keep walking into this wardrobe and now all of a sudden they're in a land called Narnia and it's snowing. And uh, they eventually come back uh, from being in Narnia and uh, they they tell the rest, she tells, Lucy tells her sister and brothers and uh, they eventually, they don't believe her, they mock her at first, but they eventually all wind up in Narnia. And in Narnia, animals can talk. So they start to discover that they need some protection because there's danger in Narnia. So Mr. and Mrs. Beaver take them into their home and they begin to talk to them. And as they begin to describe Narnia to them, they, the children just become absolutely curious and interested. Now I want to just share some quotes with you so that you can get a feel for this. But here's the first one they hear uh, being said. They say Aslan is on the move perhaps has already landed. Now, they've never heard the word Aslan before. They don't even know what that means, but Aslan is the Christ figure in this story. He is the one that uh, they're going to be more curious about. And so here's the next quote. Aslan is on the move. The witch's magic is weakening. So now they're just like, what in the world? Okay, so let me read to you a longer quote of how this conversation goes on. But now that Aslan is on the move, oh yes, tell us about Aslan, said several voices at once. For once again, that strange feeling, like the first signs of spring, like good news, had come over them. 
Who is Aslan? asked Susan. She's one of the girls. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood, but not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time, but the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white queen all right. He'll put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Is, is he a man? Asked Lucy, one of the other children. Aslan, a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you that he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Oh, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so they begin to discover that Narnia is currently under the spell of the White Witch. And here's some more quotes from the book. Come on, cried Mr. Beaver, who was almost dancing with delight. Come and see, this is a nasty knock for the witch. It looks as if her power is already crumbling. Didn't I tell you that she'd made it always winter and never Christmas? Didn't I tell you? Well, just come and see. And they go outside, and here's what they begin to discover. And now the snow was really melting in earnest, and patches of green grass were beginning to appear in every direction. And they begin to discover that even though they can't see Aslan, they can feel the effects of his power. The green grass is growing. It's always been winter since she began to rule never Christmas. Never spring, but Aslan has landed. Aslan is on the move. Now, friends, I bring this up because Jesus is announcing the kingdom of God today. And if you're following along in the notes, here's what I hope you see. Jesus has landed, bringing God's kingdom, and he's on the move. Jesus has landed, bringing God's kingdom, and he's on the move. And uh, when we think about this part, what I want you to see today in these verses particularly, if you're following along, is that he teaches what God's kingdom is like and our part in it. He teaches what God's kingdom is like and our part in it. Now, as we spend time looking at this, I'm going to talk to you about three pictures that he gives of the kingdom. Uh, there's no way this one message is going to possibly cover all that there is about his kingdom. It is such a huge subject. But what I think you'll see today is these three pictures can give us even a greater imagination for his kingdom. But, but let me just say this about 
this whole message, why, how this message lands in my life. I don't think about the kingdom of God all the time. Sometimes I go for days without thinking about the kingdom of God. And if Jesus has come to announce that the kingdom of God is the most important thing in the universe, then what does that say about me not thinking much about the kingdom of God? Let me ask you, how much do you think about the kingdom of God? So I don't know about you, but I need this message today. And I'm praying that God will use this message as we look at these verses of Jesus speaking to enlarge and capture our imagination so that we'll walk out of here and we'll walk into this Advent season thinking about the kingdom of God and its ramifications for our everyday lives, the everyday moments of our lives, and that like the people in Narnia, we will be excited. We will be excited because Jesus has landed. We will be excited because Jesus is on the move. And we will begin to see his kingdom where we've missed it before. So would you pray with me? And then we'll dig in. God, I thank you for the privilege of being in this room right now with these people. And I pray, Lord, for your own sake, would you open our eyes? Would you give us understanding? Would you help us to be like children? who are filled with wonder about your kingdom. And may it be so for your glory. Amen. Okay, I want to ask you to read with me right out of the gates. I've listed both the, the two uh, passages there in the, in the first and second gray box so we can all read off the same translation. But hold your places in the Bible. We'll come to verses 15 through 24 in chapter 14 in just a bit. So would you read first? By the way, before we read that, let me just say something about the kingdom. If you're following along in your notes, notice I mentioned something about the kingdom. What's a kingdom? The kingdom, if you're following along, is the reign of someone. It's territory ruled by a king or queen. So kingdom can mean the reign or the rule of, and it's the, it can also describe the territory that's ruled by a king or queen. I bet you knew that in many ways already. But my New Testament professor, when I was uh, in, in seminary, he would, when he would come to a passage, instead of reading the kingdom of God, he would always say the reign of God because it means the same thing. And so whenever you think about the kingdom of God, just say the reign of God, wherever God's reigning. And, and out to the right in my notes, I just put this definition. Wherever the king has his way or has control. Wherever the king has his way or has his control. So we saw what happened when the white witch had her way and had her control. It was always winter, never Christmas. But when Aslan had his way, had his control, things began to melt. So this can mean something huge like a national or international kingdom, or it can mean something as small as your kingdom. It can mean the kingdom of Jeff. What's it look like when the reign of Jeff's working in the Nelson home? What's it look like when the reign of Jeff is operating out in the neighborhood or when he's behind a wheel? What does it look like? See, these are the things we need to think of. And Jesus says, I want to talk to you about what it looks like when the king gets his way, when the king has control. And so um, this very first uh, picture is one of three. Here's the three pictures he's going to name in these verses today. Seed, yeast, feast. I like how those last two rhyme, don't you? 
Seed, yeast, feast. Those are the three he's going to talk about. So let's talk first about the seed. Would you read those first verses in that first gray box with me? Luke 13, 18 through 19 out loud. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Now this week when I was studying this, it obviously talks about a mustard seed. Some of you know that a mustard seed, Matthew's gospel, makes a big deal about how small a mustard seed is. Luke doesn't make the big deal about that other than just to say a mustard seed. But this mustard seed, um, when we think about it, um, what I was struck by is not just that it's like a mustard seed, but it's like a man who took the mustard seed and planted it. Now, if you're following along, I put it in the present tense. So, which a man takes and plants, and it grows to be a tree. Which a man takes and plants. Notice, it's not just a mustard seed that sits there. It's like a man who takes it, plants it, and then it becomes a tree. Now, if you go to chapter 19 of Luke, what you'll discover is that the common conception of the kingdom of God is that it was going to come all at once. Luke 19 says the people were expecting the kingdom of God to come all at once. Now, think about that. I can understand that. When our world is as crazy as it is, don't you want the kingdom to come all at once and turn this around? But the people... While they were expecting that, Jesus says, I need to correct your conception of the kingdom of God. It's not going to come all at once. It's going to require patience. It's going to require waiting and expectancy. Therefore, it's like a mustard seed. And I don't know about you, but even when I was a kid and they used to make us plant those seeds in the styrofoam cups and stuff like that, I wanted it to grow before I got home that day from school. But Jesus says that's not the way the kingdom works. The kingdom is much more gradual than that. But make no mistake, it's growing, and something's happening. In fact, before it's done, it'll become like a tree that has branches where the birds can actually perch there. Now, this is an interesting picture. Uh, if you're following along, what I want you to see is small at first, its branches provide refuge. Small at first, its branches provide refuge. And out to the right, I've listed passages from Ezekiel and Daniel that talk about this, that a lot of times when it referred to great empires or great kingdoms, it would say that the nations would come and rest in the branches like birds, things like that. So what Jesus is also saying is, look, in the past, in the Old Testament, when the kingdom was talked about, it was primarily, in many people's minds, just for Jewish people, just for the people of Israel. But God never intended it to stay that way. Even in Isaiah 49, he said to the Jewish people, you'll be a light to the nations. You will be one who helps me welcome the Gentiles. Now, we've been learning this over the years, but a Gentile is anyone who's not right. So that's most of us. That means that the kingdom, even though it would be gradual, would eventually include not just the Jewish people like in the Old Testament, but now Jesus has come to say, oh, no. The other nations, people from other nations, representatives from all over the world will be part of this kingdom. It's like a seed. I've often thought about how Jesus came to the earth. I mean, he barely created a splash in Bethlehem, friends. 
became quiet. There's many people that still aren't even sure who he is, but listen to what one pastor said back in 1926. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30 when public opinion turned against him. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of those things, usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. 19 centuries, and now it's 20 centuries, have come and gone. And today, Jesus is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as this one solitary life. The kingdom of God is like a seed which a man took and planted, and it became a tree. The next picture is the picture of yeast. And that is, we see in verses 20 and 21, and that's listed in that second gray box of chapter 13 in Luke. Let's read that together. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now, this is an interesting picture here. And again, I'm struck. Both with the seed and the yeast, Jesus says that a man took the seed, a woman took the yeast. They didn't just leave it there. They did something with it. They took it. Then this woman took it and mixed it into 60 pounds of flour. Now, I don't know what kind of jobs you've had, but when I was in high school and college, I've mentioned this before, I worked for four years in a grocery store. And my goal was to try and work in every department of the store, whether it be the meat department, whether it be the produce department, whether it be the bakery. And uh, so one summer, I think even for a few months longer than that, I worked in the bakery. Every night I made 4,000 donuts. It was a fascinating process. They told me I could eat as many as I wanted. I learned quickly that wasn't a good idea. But what I remember is the bakers would come in about 10 o'clock at night, and they would begin to get all of the dough ready, huge amounts. Now, when it says 60 pounds here, or three seahs, which is Old Testament language, it, what it means is it can mean 50 or 60 pounds of flour. And uh, so they would take huge amounts of flour. By the way, if you're trying to get the idea, next time you go to the grocery store, you know, most flour comes in five pound bags. Just picture 12 of those, and now you're in the neighborhood, okay? In those days, they would take yeast. They didn't have the dry yeast that eventually was created around World War II that's so easy, you just dump it into a little bit of a pinch of it. Uh, but they would usually take a piece of old dough that had fermented, and then they would mix it in all this large flour, and eventually would have this effect. 
And um, so, again, I remember coming in some nights to the bakery and seeing these guys take this. Now, I don't know if you know what happens when yeast gets together with dough, but it has an effect. In fact, I think we've got a couple pictures of it in a much smaller way, but this is like just dough, and then dough that has been mixed all the way through with yeast. Here's another picture as well, but it just shows, again, this idea of something happening. So if you're following along in the notes, here's what I want you to see about yeast. Yeast, Jesus says, which a woman takes and mixes into 60 pounds of flour. So it's got this idea that it's worked into that flour. And what really struck me this week again as I read the text was this next line. When worked all through the dough, the dough rises. When worked all the way or all through the dough, the dough rises. Question, why are there some people who claim to be Christians and yet nothing ever really changes? It's because it's possible to say, I believe in Jesus and never let his reign mix all through our lives. But when a person says, I'm going to take the reign of God that's being offered to me, mix it into my life, work it all through every area of my life, even the ones that are a little tougher to mix in, until it has an effect that is unmistakable over time. So much of that happens where you can't see it, but eventually you can't miss it if it's really happening. And Jesus says, that's what the reign of God, that's what the rule of God's like. That's what it's like when Jesus gets, when I get my way. Instead of you getting your way, that's what it looks like. Hmm. The third picture that I want you to see is that of a feast. A feast. Now, uh, if I was to uh, read uh, these, all these sections in between where we're going to jump to in chapter 14, verse 15. I don't have time to do that. But you would see that the kingdom keeps getting mentioned again more times than just what I'm reading. So this kingdom is something Jesus keeps repeating. But also, there's this idea of feast. Let me just, out to the right there, you may have noticed in the notes with the line on feast, I list Luke 13 verse 29. So let me just read to you what Jesus says before we get to chapter 14. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. And uh, he says, indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and the first who will be last. Now, he, he mentions this idea of the feast, and that brings us to chapter 14, verse 15. He's just told people that if you really want to do things God's way, don't just invite people that'll make you even more popular. Invite people that can never pay you back. And the room gets quiet because no one really wanted to hear that. So a guy decides to break the silence in verse 15 in that awkward moment, and notice what happens if you're following along. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now he's thinking, 
Thank heavens, those of us that are part of Israel, those of us that are Jewish, man, we're going to automatically be part of that. And Jesus goes, I need to correct that thinking. So then he tells this parable. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, what does all this mean? If you're following along, this feast, Jesus says, is like a man who invites many guests, but they make excuses. This last picture of the kingdom we're going to look at today, Jesus says, is like a man who invites many guests, but they make excuses. And uh, again, the idea here uh, needs some explanation. So listen to some of the background. It was customary to send two invitations in those days to a party. The first to announce the event. Nowadays, we would call that the save the date, right? Thus, this man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. It does not appear that anyone had declined, so the man made final preparations in order to have enough for everyone. The second invitation told the guests that everything was ready. In this case, the servant personally notified all the guests that it was time for them to come. This custom made perfect sense in a time frame of no telephones, watches, or assured timing for preparation of a huge meal. So the second invitation helped everyone to know exactly when to come and to refuse to come after you'd already said yes was a huge insult. Now notice what they say. They bring up things that are part of our everyday life. The first one says, I have a piece of property that I need to go look at. Another one says, I have five team of oxen that I need to test. Another one says, I just got married and I can't come. So all these things are important parts of our life. They're not minor in any way, but notice that they already had been invited to set that day aside. So now to all of a sudden say, um, these things, they're more important to me right now. Jesus says, there are some people that when the invitation goes out the first time, they all go, oh, I want to be part of that. But as soon as it boils down to what's going to be most important, they change their minds. And they say, well, this is going to be more important to me right now. And really, by turning down the invitation to banquet, they're really turning down the one who invited them. They're saying, this is more important to me than you. 
sobering, sobering thing. And if you're following along, what I want you to see is that, again, so he fills his house and welcomes the least and outcast. So he fills his house and welcomes the least and the outcast. And again, this, this whole idea is, is that in the kingdom, look, this isn't just for the people that were originally first invited. I want to make room for any person that's humble enough to receive the kingdom, my reign, like a child that says, you can have your way. I want to be part of this feast. Now, there's several things I could say about a feast. First, let me say this. A feast is more than food. Some of you know that, in fact, some of us just had a feast on Thursdays. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Now, not everybody, but I know that. But you know, here's the thing about a feast like that. That's not just great if the food's great, because if the company's not great, it's not a feast. Anybody relate to what I'm talking about? Uh, like if the company's like, uh, well, you know. <laughs> but if you love who you're with, then it's a feast. And Jesus is giving this idea that this guy, he, it was a very important banquet. He invited many guests, and then people started coming up with excuses. So he goes, I'm going to go where people would appreciate this. Where they, even though they'll be reticent at first to say, do you really mean me? Compel them to come in. Tell them, yes, I mean you. I'm not going to take no for an answer just because you don't think you're worthy. I'm inviting you in. And he invites them in, and they are the least. And then he says, hey, there's still room. He goes, then go out to the outcasts, the ones that before maybe never got accepted or maybe didn't think they were included, if they're humble enough to come so that my house may be full. But then he also says these sobering things as well. Now, let me just tell you another thing about a feast is that this was part of what had been prophesied in the Old Testament. So look at Isaiah 25, if you would. Jesus uh, is referring to something that many of the people, so when this guy says, blessed is the one who gets to eat at the feast of the kingdom of God, he was actually referencing back to some of the Old Testament prophecies. Here's one. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Here's another thing I want to say about a feast. Aren't you glad that the Christian life is more about a feast than a funeral? Friends, a feast means joy. But many of us, when we think about following Christ and giving him sway and letting him have his way, we get sad. We think that's death, but actually it's life. It's joy. Actually, the only times I regret in my life, ultimately, are the times I got my way. The times that Christ got his way have always led to joy. Because when he gets his way, snow begins to melt. And the grass begins to grow. He is the king, I tell you. And so this idea here. Now, by the way, if you read to the end of the Bible, we win. That's what Billy Graham said. That's why he's an optimist, okay? If you've trusted Christ, no matter what's going on right now, there's going to be a feast. Look at Revelation 19 
Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding, what, friends? Feast of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words that come from God. So every time you and I take communion, do you realize that Jesus was looking ahead to this feast when he instituted communion? If you look at Luke twenty-two sixteen, here's what he says when he first shared communion with his disciples. Luke twenty-two sixteen, it says this, for I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So if you're looking for help like I am to remember the kingdom of God, when we take communion next week, then what we need to remember is not only what Jesus Christ has done for us and remember him as our king, but we also need to look ahead and remember that this is just a foretaste of the feast that is promised for every person who humbles themselves and puts their trust in Christ and his righteousness. That feast is for those who will receive his kingdom like a child. What a day. What a day. The kingdom is now and not yet. And we look for that day with expectancy. So notice one last thing in this section, that every response has far-reaching consequences, good and bad. Every response has far-reaching consequences, good and bad. Did you notice that it says this? If you take the seed, if you take the yeast, and you plant it, and you mix it, watch what happens. The consequences of that are amazing. If you take the invitation and you eat at the feast, the consequences of that are phenomenal. But if you don't take the seed, if you don't take the yeast, if you don't take the invitation, you miss it. And the kingdom has no effect in your life. And there'll come a day when the door will be shut and you will miss the kingdom of God. So Jesus takes our responses and he takes us very seriously. We're responsible for our responses, but the possibilities, the fact that he would even invite us is such good news. So this last section talks about responding to the good news of his kingdom. And again, if you read chapter four, or chapter eight, or chapter 16, you'll see this phrase found there, that Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom. Why is it good news? Because if he comes, then winter melts. The green grass eventually will be visible. He will invite you to a feast. This is incredibly good news, isn't it? And so how do we take advantage and respond to the good news? Let me just mention one more thing before I tell you. Mark 1.15, this is how Jesus, according to Mark, some of the first things he said. Let's read it together. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So here's three ways that you and I can take the kingdom of God into our lives this Advent season. First, acknowledge. 
Now, even if you've never heard of the kingdom of God before, you have now. But here's the question I'm going to ask you. Are you willing to acknowledge his kingdom? And here's what I've put. Jesus, I've heard of your authority and invitation. In other words, I'm not ignorant. I acknowledge that you have a kingdom and that you have authority and you have an invitation that you've extended to me. I acknowledge that. I'm not going to live with my head in the sand. I'm not going to live with excuses. I'm not going to act like I never knew. I know you have proclaimed the good news of the kingdom to me this morning. And I know that it's not just for the people in the Bible or for pastors or missionaries or extra credit Christians. It's also for me. And it's also for people driving by right now out on that road, people beyond our walls. This invitation is for everyone who will receive it. What good news. Have you acknowledged this kingdom? Second, repent, Jesus said. Repent, what's that mean? It means to change your mind like Steve taught us last week. It's not feeling bad and shaming ourselves and guilt tripping ourselves. That's not repentance, friends. Repentance just means that you change your mind about what you've thought. And so here's what repentance looks like. Lord, I've believed a lie and not let you rule over my life. I've believed a lie and not let you rule over my life. What's the lie? Maybe it's the lie that I think I can do a better job than you, Lord. I need to repent of that. If I say, Lord, I think I'm going to run this show with my money. I'm going to run this show with my sexuality. I'm going to run this show with my job. I'm going to run this show with my parenting, with my being in marriage, whatever it might be, my free time, whatever it is. Every time I believe that I can do a better job, that's a lie. And the best news in the world is for me to change my mind and say, I see now you can do better. I repent of that. The last thing, though, is to believe. And to believe is to believe with joy, I take in your invitation to rule my life. With joy, I take in your invitation to rule my life. Now, in my notes, I actually just left those blanks in the last two lines empty in some ways. Because what would it be in your life that maybe you're not willing to let the Lord rule? That he's not really reigning or ruling that you've said, well, I want, you, I want your kingdom. I, I accept your invitation, but actually, I'm not really letting you be king there. I don't know what it would look like for you, but what if, that, what if you let him rule? Now, many of us have learned the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is listed in Matthew 6, 9, and 10 as, you know, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You remember the next part? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know Luke's gospel is found in chapter 11? You know how he summarizes this whole thing? Three words. And I want to invite you this week, what if you say, you know, Jeff, I'm like you. The kingdom of God is like not that much a part of my imagination, not much of my thought life at all, not much of my heart. Like, Jesus wants it to be. What if you were just to practice saying these three words at least once the next seven days? Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. With my kids, with my classmates, with my job, with my money, with my free time, with my body. What would that look like? What if you decided to change your mind and trust him 
and really believe that the best news in your life would be to let him take over. All of you, including that. I've told you this many times, I'll tell you again. My dad was a pastor. And he preached, and he was the guy I heard almost every Sunday. And now, the older I get, the more I thank God. Because God had showed him something about the kingdom of God. And so when he would preach, he almost always, no matter what topic we studied that Sunday, would almost always end with this question. So, now having heard the word of God, will you yield to him in this area? Will you let him have his way? And those questions just wrecked me. Because I realized that I was still the reign of Jeff. But I realized too that it was good news he was putting his finger on that because really if I kept reigning there, it would be winter and not spring. And I'm thankful that he kept preaching the good news of the kingdom. And that's what I bring to you this morning through Jesus' words, is will you yield to the king? Will you pray it and mean it? Your kingdom come. Your reign, your rule come in me. Like a seed, like yeast, so that I can be part of the feast. Oh my goodness. I don't know what he's saying to you. One last thought. I love the Messiah. I know it's classical music and everything. But I used to listen to it because it's scripture. And it, one of the sections, Revelation eleven fifteen, says this. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. And he shall reign forever. And ever, that's why it matters what you and I do between his two comings. Because one day, we will give an account for what we've done with the king. Is he first? Is he the best? Is he greatest? That's why he came. Take time now to pray and ask him what he's saying to you.